From the book of Genesis, chapter 15, starting with verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. The word of the Lord. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore." All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had thinking, if they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12, starting with verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you this morning. This morning, I, I want to begin a, uh, 
a three-part series. Um, we're following the lectionary calendar, but these three weeks we've grouped into a series on faith, the essence of faith. Uh, we're asking this question like, okay, what does it mean to have faith? Like in our world, that sounds kind of abstract. Uh, what, what does it actually look like? What is the essence of faith? And I think we have some fundamental misunderstandings about faith. Since the time of the Enlightenment in our world, that many have thought of faith as something primarily intellectual. Okay? So we live in a modern world, and we have tended to think about faith as something that we can think about something we can grasp intellectually, and that's really what faith is. We've been influenced by philosophers like Descartes, who his famous statement, if you don't know anything about Descartes, you might know the statement, I think, therefore I am. That the essence of being, that what it means to exist, that what it means to be a human being is to think. And that's the world that we've lived in, has believed this philosophy, that who we are are primarily thinking things. That's who humans are. We are thinking things. We tend, if we take that to its extent, we tend to think that, so our bodies are just vehicles for our minds. That really our minds are what matter, our thinking is what matter, and our bodies, they're just kind of these temporary vehicles that we carry around. And we've overlaid this onto our understanding of scripture and of Christianity. So we think, I have faith in the thing I'm able to intellectually grasp, the thing I'm able to understand, the thing I can wrap my head around. And if this is what we mean by faith, no wonder we have people who read the story of the Bible, especially the more miraculous elements, the virgin birth and the resurrection, and we go, yeah, if faith means I have to understand those parts, then I don't have faith, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't get that. I don't comprehend that. So there's, on this one hand, we tend to think about faith as intellectual. We're thinking things, what, what we can grasp. But there's another false way we tend to think about faith. And in the circles I grew up in, we didn't think of faith as much as intellectual, but faith as like a power we could muster up, that we could get more faith. Faith is like a power or a currency or a thing that if we just work really hard at it, we can get more of it. So faith is like a key we can put into a lock. So are you sick? Well, probably you don't have enough faith. Need money? Have faith. Want that new car? Just say it's yours in Jesus' name. Sometimes we think of faith as this power that we can muster up, this secret key that we can kind of get to unlock a door. But the Bible's understanding of faith is way more embodied and fleshy and real than intellectual knowledge or superstition. It's deeper than that. Faith is about trust. And faith is about trust in a relationship with God. There are times in any close relationship where it is difficult to have trust in that relationship. It's true of the best relationships. There are times in life where you look at the person, the other person who you've walked with, and you may say, I don't know that I feel like I love you right now. <laughs> in fact, I don't know that I feel like I like you all that much. And I'm not sure that I know that you love me or like me in this moment. But the point of any good relationship is not that we feel it in that moment or we even intellectually grasp it in that moment or that we do some secret thing to unlock it. The point of any relationship is we keep walking in the relationship. We keep walking towards wholeness. Faith is that substance, that keep movingness, that longing and anticipation that there's something more than just what I'm experiencing in this moment. There's gotta be. Faith, like all relationships that have longevity, is about habits. 
It's about the in and out of everyday life and the continuing to walk through it. In our Old Testament story, we have Abram, who would become eventually the father of God's chosen people. And he and his wife were without children. And at this point in their life, they were too, whole, too old to have any. I just noticed, I don't know if you noticed in the Hebrews reading that we read there, they didn't graciously talk about how old he was. They said he was as good as dead, right? So he's, he's very old at this point. And, and God had made a promise to Abram in chapter 12 that he would become a great nation. But it's now chapter 15 and it hasn't happened. He's had no kids. So the the chapter 15 starts here with a vision and God appears to Abram in a vision and says, do not be afraid. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abram's response is basically like, hold on a minute. You don't get to say that, okay? Because that thing you promised me back in chapter 12, they didn't call it chapter 12 back then, but, but that thing that you promised me a while back has not happened yet. You don't get to say that. In fact, he says, you said I would have an heir, but I don't have one yet. My heir to my household will be my slave. When God made this promise back in chapter 12, he promised not only that Abram would have kids, but that he would also have land, okay? So God promised that Abram's offspring would be a people and that he would be their God, but a people need a land, And that's the reward that he's talking about is there will be a land that will happen. You have a people and you have this land that you can pass down from generation to generation to generation. Abram is sitting here and he's like, I don't have a generation, let alone a generation and generation and generation, and I don't have land. So what are you doing with this promise here? This promise was not just for one generation. This is not, it's so important when we read these stories, this is not just a story about God wanting to bless Abram. And then God eventually came through and helped Abram achieve his dreams. No, no, this is deeper than that. This is a promise of a people, of a healing the world and blessing the world people, and of a land. This isn't just Abram's story. This is God's story. Abram thinks it's not going to happen, okay? This promise God gave me is not going to happen. He doubts, and he's honest with God about his doubts. That's what people in relationships do healthy relationships, is we are honest about doubts. We're honest about struggles. We're honest about pain. And here in this place, there's barrenness. Abram and Sarah are barren. And there is a promise in the midst of the barrenness. But but in chapter 15, the promise has not yet overcome the barrenness. In this place where Abram's going, what is going on? Faith is lived in that place. The place where we believe the promise against the barrenness. But we still have to live in the barrenness. The scandal of our faith is this. How do we trust in the promise when the evidence all around it is against the promise? How do we live that? Abram embraces that scandal. He doesn't run away from that scandal. And that's what makes him the father of faith. We are a people of a scandal that we believe that there is a promise of a world made right, that there is something different, that there is something other, and we choose to believe that even when the evidence doesn't say so. That's who the church is. That's who we're called to be. When I picture Abram here, I picture um, Lucy's response when we have promised her something and it's not come at the same time that she's expected it to come. We had a lot of trouble in Seattle, um, so don't let us ever try to tell you that our Seattle trip was just picturesque and perfect all the time. It was, it was wonderful, but it was also challenging. 
And there'd be some times where we'd tell her, hey, we're gonna go see your cousins now, your cousins is what we call them. We're gonna go see your cousins now. And then things would get long and the travel day would go long. And we'd go, oh, we need to stop for lunch. She'd be like, well, you said we were gonna go get the cousins. Go see the cousins. We'd go, well, yes, we're going to do that, but we have to stop here first. And she's going, there was given me a promise back in chapter 12. And now in chapter 15, this is not happening. The barrenness is still here is what she's saying. No, no. Well, we still are, but it's not going to happen in the way that you expected. Now, it's easy for me to deflect this to a story about my child, but really Abram is me. Every time I think God isn't going to take care of me. And Abram is probably you too. Every time you think God isn't going to take care of you. You made this promise and it's not happening. As Christians, we affirm that God is making a new world, that he's making all things new, that God created a good world, that he chose a people and sustained them. Through them, he sent his son, Jesus, to heal and save the world. But we don't always see that new world real clearly. And even more often, we feel like he's not doing it the way that we would do it. But God, the most powerful being in the universe, is committed to taking us to the ultimate destination, to his world restored, where all of these things will work together for his good. And there is stuff that happens along the journey, sometimes because of human free will, sometimes because God is doing it in a different way, sometimes because we just don't even, we just don't understand it, where God says, I am going to be faithful to the promise, but it may not look what you, like you expected it to look. It may be different than that. Christians tend to talk about sovereignty and God's sovereignty. It's this big fancy theological word of God is being kind of um, over everything, Lord over everything. And, God and Christians talk about God's sovereignty in a multitude of ways. And it's one of the great mysteries of our faith. And I'm not someone, if you've been around here very long, you know this about me. I'm not somebody who tends to speak of God as controlling every aspect of our lives and of our world. There are some Christians that talk about God that way. I don't tend to talk about God that way. But I do believe that God is sovereign. And what I mean by that is he will be faithful to take us to the destination, to the world made right. He will make things right. And in the midst of that, he gives his children a level of freedom because of his love, that we can make choices. And often things happen in life, not because God designed them or controlled them, but because we live in a world that is subject to human freedom and also subject to human rebellion. Okay. Yet in the midst of it all, we trust that God is working and he is working about bringing his new world, even in the midst of all of that. So Abram says, I'm gonna die without an heir. A slave will be my heir. And God says, Abram, no, that's not going to happen you will have your own heir. And he tells Abram, look up at the sky and count the stars, indeed, if you can count them. And then he says, so shall your offspring be. Now we can look at this a couple different ways. Like, it's kind of weird that God says, hey, Abram, I, I know you have this doubt right now, but look at the stars. Like, what? But we could think of it as like an illustration that he's just giving them a nice illustration of, you know, this is what your descendants are gonna look like. But I focus in on this one phrase, Count the stars if you can, he says to Abram. Count the stars if you can. The reality is you can't count the stars, Abram and Preston, everybody. But I, your God, can. This is a loving reminder that God is beyond what Abram can see. 
God's promise is beyond what we can see. And so Abram repents here. Simply in God's words, God doesn't do anything else other than his words, Abram abandons measuring reality based on what he can see, touch, and manage. He abandons that. He throws that away. There is a new future. So what changes for Abram? Like he's given this illustration about the stars instead of he can count them. What changes to make Abram go from doubt to belief? Doesn't make sense. Well, it's easy to read this as number one, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Number two, Abram says, but everything sucks. You didn't say that you would do what you would do. Number three, Jesus says, well, I'm gonna do it. Check out the stars. And then number four, Abram says, cool. Like sometimes that's how we read this story, but no, there's something else. It's more than that. What God does is he shows Abram a sign. He reminds Abram, I'm the one who made the stars. There is a physical reality that he points to. I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who can count the stars. Commentator Terence Fredheim says that God gives Abram a sacrament a concrete, visible sign of his future reality. And I believe in this power of what we call the sacramental imagination, that every time we receive the Eucharist, every time we come to the table, we are participating in a reality that we can see, but we can't fully see. We are participating in God's future new world, even though we don't see that new world. All we see is bread and wine the intersection of the visible and the invisible. Abraham sees this sign and sees that the God who orders the stars will order his people. The book of Hebrews today is nice and convenient for us today because what it does is it points back to the Abraham story. So it's kind of more of a fuller explication of the Abraham story. And it defines faith for us. So there's this famous verse, faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. And I love how it says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is something substantial right now. Faith is living in the substance of things that we can't yet see. Faith is clinging on to a new world that the old world is unable to see. Faith is not a pie in the sky abstract thought that, oh, I hope there might someday be something out there. Faith is a substance. It's a reality. Fredheim again says, faith is a reception of the goodness of God promised in spite of the way the world is. It is, it is receiving the goodness of God in spite of everything else that's swirling around you. We long for a new world and then we live into that new world. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, here's the things that we have faith in. So first of all, we have faith that God created the world. That's not something we can see. As much as a lot of Christian scientists have tried, I don't think we're ever going to prove that God created the world scientifically, okay? But um, God created the world. That's not something that we can see, but we live into that reality. We trust the one who created the world. So that's what we do when we pray before our meals. And I've talked about this before, but um, when we pray before our meals, this is not like a oh, I better say this superstitious blessing over this meal so that I don't get sick, right? Like that's how sometimes we talk about that. But no, what we're doing when we pray is we're thanking God, thank you that you created the world in such a way that you provided food for our family today. Thank you that you did that and you sustained the world in such a way. It's recognizing he's in charge, that we're not in charge of that. So we have faith that it is God who created the world. And then we have faith that God created a people, 
Abraham obeyed God, and I love how it said, by faith he received the power of procreation, even though he was old, and Sarah herself was barren because he considered him faithful who had promised. Abraham held on to a world that he could not see. And I love this idea that God created a people out of these two people who couldn't do it on their own. This is a constant reminder that it is God who brings about the promise, not us. We can sit on a hamster wheel and we can just spin and spin and spin trying to get the promise fulfilled in our lives. But at the end of the day, God's design for us and for the world is not up to us and our effort. It's up to him and trusting him. And if you think about it, the author says, all of these people lived into the promises of God, even though they never received them. The author says, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. The message translation, I love love it, says of these people who received the promise, that they, that they saw them and waved at them in greeting. And Hebrews says that there are people who live in this kind of weird way today, that they're looking for a world made right. They're looking for a homeland. And because of that, they live in a different way, in a different pattern, longing for this new country, this new homeland, and God has a city waiting for them. The New Testament is so interesting here. Much of the letters in the New Testament are written to the church, the early church. And the early church in the New Testament was thinking that Jesus would come back any second, that Jesus is probably gonna come back this weekend. So we just hold on and just keep serving him and then he's gonna come back. Well, they wouldn't know that generation after generation after generation would pass, right? And now millennia have passed. Resurrection has happened so God's new world could show up anytime. But they didn't anticipate that there would be generations of people who would choose to live by faith. They would know God's resurrection power, but still long for that world in fullness. And we still anticipate that fullness today. The church are the people who look back on God's promise and God's promise in Jesus And we live in ways that only make sense when we anticipate that he's going to make the world right. This is why the church is weird, okay? It is weird to go to church. I know some of you bristle when I say this on Sundays, but like, it's a weird thing that we do. It's different. It should be countercultural. In fact, anytime we try to make church exactly like something else in our culture, it ends up being corrupted. Okay? So if we try to make church like politics and we blend it with empire and with politics, it always gets corrupted. When we try to blend it with business and with enterprise, I mean, there's an element of church that involves business, but when we try to make it a business and we lead with that, it always gets corrupted. When we blend the church with celebrity and entertainment, it always gets corrupted because the church is something that sticks out and is kind of weird and different in the world, Right? Rachel Held Evans in the years before her death, she only died recently, but she wrote about returning to, returning to the church after she'd been away from it for years. So she went back to church after years of searching. And she gave this speech called Keep the Church Weird. That was her speech. Talking about how strange the life of faith is and how we should embrace that and not run away from that. And here's what she said. We already know the answer to that question how to keep young people in church. And contrary to popular belief, it's not about making the church more hip 
It's not about adding coffee shops in the lobby, in the lobby and fog machines on the stage. It's not about pastors who wear skinny jeans. It's about communion. It's about baptism. It's about confession. It's about healing. It's about death and resurrection and all the beautiful, weird things the church has always been doing. We're different. The church is weird and it should be weird. And it's gonna feel more weird as we step deeper into the 21st century and our world becomes less and less affiliated with church. And that's a good thing because it means that the church will stand different, won't be as blended. Trendy church may make the church big, but trendy church doesn't last from generation to generation. We have to build the church on something deeper than that because we're longing for a new world. That's our hope. I've told some of you that I've, I've felt just a stronger burden lately in our church as we've had more babies born. Um, just this, this strong burden that we're not here just to get kind of more people in the building, but that we're here from, for generation after generation after generation. And what does it mean to live as a people who pass down a faith that well after I'm gone and all of us are gone, that that faith remains? What does that look like? We are a people longing for a new world. That's our hope. Um, and that hope is beyond our lifetime. We hear a lot in the modern church this, and we've, I've heard this growing up and there's some, a lot of truth to it, but when people are struggling that we say God has a plan. But sometimes when we think about God's plan, we think of it from a self-centered perspective, which is just natural. But God's plan for you is not this. It's not, well, you're struggling right now, but someday you're gonna be super successful and all your dreams will come true. Well, that's not the right way to talk about God's plan. God's plan is his new world that he's designing and that he's putting together. And this new world comes in and through us as we receive it. So seeing a new world born happens through struggle and through pain. Paul compares it to the childbirth, to birth pangs. As Christians, we often feel like we're struggling with something. We're pushing against the grain in our ethics and our patterns and our constant choice to lay our lives down. It's suffering, it's difficult. Now we're not glorifying suffering. There are some philosophical movements today that tend to say, well, suffering's the whole point. That's everything. No, that's not what Christians say. Christians don't say that suffering's the point, but that God's new world is always birthed through suffering. I was talking this week to somebody who felt like they just couldn't see God at work in their lives, that they were struggling to see their dreams come true. And I was struggling with them and I was reminded and I reminded them, and I have to remind myself constantly that often experiencing God is not about waiting for him to make our lives what we want them to be or what we think they should be but about finding the character that he's developing in our lives in tough times and in difficult times. God may be more present in the struggle than in the success. I think, I don't know, <laughs> but he might, okay. Um, that person said what I think we would all say. Well, that's nice, but I'm just not that unselfish. <laughs> <laughs> to think that it's about, and I said, yeah, me neither. <laughs> I don't think any of us are, but that's where it's the Spirit's work in us. And I think a lot of us believe this myth or these myths that there's a good life out there, 
that is the ultimate goal. And for us, that may be fame or money or security or approval, that once I get that thing, that's the good life. But talk to the people who have achieved that thing that you think is the end goal. (laughs) They're not happy. If that's what they chase their whole life, they're not happy. But a life centered on the kingdom of God means that we celebrate what God does in our lives. So we can look to him in the pain and we can celebrate the joys. When that thing that we've accomplished, that whatever it is, the promotion or the amount of money that we've saved or whatever, when that's not our driving force, but it's God's blessing in our lives, then we can go, thank you, God, because you did this in me. When worldly success or whatever comes our way, we can appreciate it because we hold it loosely. It's not the goal. Okay, finally, just wrapping up here. In our gospel text, Jesus says to his disciples, do not be afraid, little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he tells them to sell their possessions, to give to the poor. He talks about a heavenly treasure that can never be stolen by a thief or destroyed by moths. He says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this, like God says to Abram, this is a loving call to faith. He tells them not to be afraid. That's what he told Abram to. You don't sell your possessions and give to the poor unless you believe in a different world and in a new world. If you believe this is all there is, then you wanna hold on to every possession that you have. But if you think God is making all things new, then you do something different. It's important for us to remember Jesus gives this command in a world where food and clothing were scarce. There there was no room for luxuries in the first century, just food and clothes if you were lucky. And also he isn't telling wealthy people not to worry about their investments or the stock market or their 401ks. He's telling the poor, don't worry about your livelihood. Don't worry about whether you're gonna eat tomorrow. Trust, do not be afraid. We live in a world that's driven on scarcity. We worry that if we give too much away, our needs will not be met. But God's kingdom, the kingdom of resurrection is different. We give freely knowing that God will take care of us and that God will use our gift. What Jesus is saying is that we store up treasures in heaven. He's not saying that somehow we are storing up things we will access after we die, okay? That's one kind of misunderstanding of this. I remember just after 9-11, as we were trying to grapple with what what does the Muslim world believe and what, you know, what, why did these things happen and what ideologies were they based on? And, and one of the, um, the things that was used to said about these extremist adherents to Islam was that they would commit suicide because they believed that there were virgins waiting for them in heaven. Did you guys kind of hear this? And I think this is true as an extreme uh, viewpoint. But we tend to speak similarly in the church about rewards in the future. That if you do good enough, God will reward you right? But the reward is the new world itself. God's plan is the reward. Him making things new, a world that's based on faith, hope, and love, that is the reward. And we believe as we pray in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that there will come a day when God's will will be fully done on earth as it is in heaven. And the church gets to be the people who we anticipate that so much that we start living that way as if God's will was done here. Jesus tells his disciples to be dressed for action and have their lamps lit. Be like those waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet. Be ready to receive God's new world. Do you remember as a kid when you were really anticipating something so much that you just went ahead and got dressed for the event hours early? 
okay? You got so excited for something, you just sat there just waiting for it to happen. You were dressed and ready. When I played basketball in uh, middle school and elementary school, if I, if I had a Saturday afternoon game, by 10 a.m., I got my uniform on, right? I may be out in the driveway, you know, shooting hoops or something. I, I was a basketball player before the game even tipped off, right? I was ready to go. And I have to admit, as my ordination is approaching, that I'm excited. I'm anticipating this. I've been doing this for three years, but in some ways have anticipated this for like 10 years. I've been walking down this road. I have all my stuff ordered. I have to wear funny clothes, robes, and all this kind of stuff, and all that stuff's ready. The place is booked. I'm ready. I'm anticipating. I'm longing. I thought this week, as Ashley and I are putting together our preparing for our third home study, our, uh, our third year of waiting for an adoption. We've been waiting and anticipating and longing. And there's so much of that as this goes on that we're starting to live as if this, as if this could happen any day. So we have baby clothes ready to go, that, but we've been waiting for two years now, you know, but yet we still live every day as if this could happen right? We anticipate, we live as a people, the church are a people of anticipation. So Luke, the author here, is pointing back to Israel's foundational story, the story of the Exodus. At the Passover meal, the children of Israel were commanded to eat with their sandals on their feet and a stick in their hand. You can imagine that. They're eating their unleavened bread and their Passover meal, and they've got their stick in their hand and their sandals on, and they're standing up and they're eating. That's actually why the bread was unleavened, because they didn't even give it time to rise, right? They just had to eat it quickly. Okay, that was the Passover story. We are to live that way. Jesus' disciples are to live preparing for God's new world, dressed and ready to go. The kingdom of God is coming when God will return and put everything right so we can trust that Jesus will provide for us. So the questions for us to leave with today, in what ways are you struggling to see God's new world in your life? On a micro level, I know some of you are asking questions like, why am I stuck in this job? Surely this is not what God made me for. Or why can't I have kids? Or why is my marriage not what I expect it to be? Where is God in all of this? And everyone in your life is wrestling with these kinds of questions. You're not alone. Everybody you meet is struggling with this kind of tension. Why is my life not like I thought it would be? In fact, it's often hard for people to go to church in those times, that they feel distant from God, but it is precisely those in that time of faith who need the church the most. Some of our questions are deeper than that. They're deeper than even circumstantial. Why did I lose a family member at such a young age? Why does my sister have cancer? Why has that family member rejected me? We are not to be afraid of these questions. Every good relationship involves honestly asking that person, honestly asking God in this sense. We're sitting, God is sitting with us in the pain. God knows it doesn't make sense for us. And he lovingly reminds us that even in the midst of all of that, that he's working behind the scenes, that he has made the stars and we can't even count them. And he is going to make things new. This week, I was struck by the weight of the mass shootings in our country last week. And for those of us living hours and hours away from these events that have happened, our minds, I think, immediately in our culture run to what are the political ramifications? What can we do to fix this, to make sure this doesn't happen again? 
We talk about death counts and we post statistical graphs and we talk about the limits of thoughts and prayers and how that may not be enough. And we debate mental health versus guns versus ideology. We do all these things. But I was struck this week by the fact that for the victims and for the families of these victims, real flesh and blood asking, where is God? Why did this happen? What's going on? And the church is called to be a sacramental presence of God's solidarity in the midst of pain. And the loving reminder that there will be a day when guns will be beat into plowshares, when the lion will lie down with the lamb. And we can choose to live that way now. Final thing is in what ways might God be calling you into his new world, even if it's weird? God is calling each of us to lay down some stuff that doesn't feel comfortable, that's hard. That's what spiritual disciplines are about. As a kid, when I used to hear about people who would read their Bible and pray, I would hear about people who could just get in a rhythm of it. And they just read their Bible for long periods of time and they pray and it just is all natural and it's all easy. And then I realized as I got, I got older that everybody struggles with that. <laughs> <laughs> on some level, that it's a, it's a wrestle for everybody. Now, some people are more you know, intellectual and so they like to piece down the Bible and so they can take hours doing that. Some people are more devotional and that fits their personality and it's great, but it's a challenge for all of us to reorient our lives in that way. It's weird, it doesn't feel normal. Christian ethics are not always natural. We're called to live a life that's self-giving and embracing others. This week, I had a few situations where I had some people ask me about the, the priest thing and about the ordination thing. And I found myself instinctually just trying to normalize it all to kind of make it not weird, okay? <laughs> to kind of say, yeah, it's really not that big a deal. It's kind of this thing. And then I felt this kind of check in my heart to go embrace the weird, that God's calling you to do something kind of different, kind of unique and follow that path because church is weird, Finally, in in what ways might God be calling us to a sense of anticipation? God's new world is is coming. What if we believed that? What would it look like to live God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? In the midst of it all, my prayer is may we hold on to his calling. Do not be afraid. You don't have to fear failure, rejection, or lack of provision. He is with you and he's making all things new. Amen.